If you haven't already done so, open your Bibles to that passage, to Isaiah 49. As you're turning there, I want to remind you of a story, the story of two people that we hear so often this time of year, the, the story of Simeon and Hannah. Actually, read their story in, in Luke chapter 2. I'm not going to ask you to turn there this morning, but let me remind you of, of what we hear. We are told that there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. That is, he was waiting for the coming of the servant. The, the, the one whom Isaiah had foretold, the one who, who we were told would, would bring comfort to the people of God by bringing them out of exile and reconciling them to the Lord. Similarly, we are told that there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. And from the moment that Jesus was presented at the temple, we're told that at that very hour she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The, the idea is that there was this, this group that was gathered, that, that gathered at the temple regularly to, to wait for the promised redemption. When Anna sees Jesus by the Spirit, she recognizes that this is the one. Two people waiting for the consolation of Israel. Two people waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Waiting for the Messiah, the, the promised servant who would bring comfort and salvation to the people of God. And by the Spirit, both of them recognized that Jesus was the one. The baby born in Bethlehem is the servant of the Lord. Now that is all that you knew of the story then you would naturally expect that, that things in Jerusalem, things in Israel, even things to the ends of the earth, would look remarkably different at the end of Jesus' life than they did at the beginning. If this is the, the servant, if this is the one who's going to establish justice uh, in the earth, if this is the one who will not grow faint or, or be discouraged until he has accomplished his mission, if this is the one who is going to do all of that, then, then we would naturally expect to see justice in the earth at the end of his life. At least that's what it seems like we should expect. But when we read the rest of the story, we, we realize that that's not the way the story unfolds. We don't see justice on the earth at the end of Jesus' life. Instead, the injustice that seems to be the defining mark of life in this age, that injustice seems to overwhelm and swallow him. He doesn't put an end to it, it puts an end to him. He's betrayed by one of his own disciples, sold out for, for 30 pieces of silver. He is unjustly convicted by false witnesses and corrupt judges and then is summarily executed at the hands of lawless men. Not only does he not establish justice in the earth, he, he can't even seem to secure justice for himself. And the truth is that since his death, things don't appear to have changed all that much. 
age is still marked by injustice and unrighteousness. This, this week I was talking to someone who, who's had a particularly hard month. Someone in whom reality's had a, had a hard life. And she spoke through tears about the acute frustration of seeing wicked people get away with it again and again and again. Wicked people do innumerable bad things that cause immeasurable pain to countless people, and yet they seem to flourish. While the lives of their victims are ground to dust. It's just not right, she said. And she's right. It's not right. It's not the way that it's supposed to be. It's the very definition of injustice. We, we've all felt it. Some of us feel it more acutely than others. We've all felt the sting of injustice in this age. We know in our gut that things are not right. We, we know that things are not the way they are supposed to be. We know that it is injustice rather than God's righteousness that is the defining mark of this age. But how can that be? How can it be if, if Jesus is the servant of the Lord, if he is the one foretold by the prophet, if he is the consolation of Israel, if he is the one who will not grow faint or, or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth, how is it possible that Jesus came and justice did not? That's the question. It's, it, it's a fair question. And it's the question that at least in part this song begins to answer for us. And so I want us to see the answer that it gives us this morning. And, and, and we see it beginning look right there in verse 4. Look again at what the servant says. And remember, this is the servant. This is the, the servant of the Lord speaking. And what does he say? He says uh, in verse 1, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you people from afar. Listen up. This is like a parent speaking to herself. Listen up. This is something important. This is something that you need to hear. But what does he say? Verse 4, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. This is the servant speaking. And the servant says, I have labored in vain. The one who God said would not grow faint until he had accomplished his mission says, I spent my strength for nothing and vanity. These aren't the words we usually emphasize this time of year. These aren't the, the words that, that we usually focus on. But here we hear Jesus saying, I have labored in vain. We expect to hear one another say that sort of thing, right? We, we say this sort of thing all the time. We, we say, well, that was a waste of time. Or we say, well, that was a lot of wasted effort. That was a lot of work for nothing. We say that sort of thing all the time because we know what it is to work really hard at something and fail. But we don't expect to hear Jesus say it. And yet, here the servant of the Lord says, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing. So we need to know how to make sense of this. We, we need to know how to understand what Jesus is saying. And the first thing I think we need to see is that Jesus is not here giving us the, uh, the, the final assessment of his ministry. 
Notice again what it says. It says, the servant is speaking, and the servant says, but I said. There was a point when I said, I have labored in vain. So, so Jesus is recounting a time when he said, I have spent my strength for nothing. But he's, he's not giving us sort of his, his final assessment of his ministry, but he's saying there was a point when it looked like I had labored in vain. In fact, even as he says it, read the rest of verse 4. He says, he says I said I have labored in vain. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. It looks like I have labored in vain. It looks like I have spent my strength for nothing. It feels that way. And yet I know that God is not done. That God's work will yet be completed. Jesus is here acknowledging the appearance of his failure. Not asserting its fact. He, he is saying, it appears, it, it feels like I have failed. It appears, it appears that I have labored in the vein. But I know the truth. I know that my right is with the Lord. And so it's vital that we, we see this. It's vital that we see this for at least two reasons. First, we need to see that the appearance of failure, the, the, the apparent failure of the servant, that that is not unexpected. And second, we need to see that the promise of salvation to the ends of the earth, it still stands. So first, we, we see that the, the appearance of failure is not unexpected. It, it's not unexpected that the initial assessment of Jesus' ministry is failure. As I said, Jesus himself referred to the coming kingdom as a mustard seed, something that would start off so small as to seem insignificant. And yet it would eventually grow into the plant that houses the nests of the birds of the air. And so it's not unexpected that the world would think that the, the results of, of Jesus' work look like anything but success. It's not unexpected that the world would, would say that the Prince of Peace came and didn't bring peace. It's not unexpected that, that we would say that the prophet announced that the increase of his government and his peace, would, there would be no end, and yet it looks like they never even got started. We shouldn't be surprised. We're told here by the servant himself that it would appear that he had labored in vain. If I look again at verse 7, now it's the Lord speaking, and he's speaking of the, he's speaking to the servant actually. So the, the, the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, the Holy One, says to one deeply despised, one abhorred by the nation, one who is the servant of rulers. This is, this is how the Lord uh, describes his servant. The, the Lord is acknowledging that at least initially the servant was despised, abhorred, and seemingly conquered by his enemies. And therefore, again, we, we should not be discouraged by the seeming failure of his ministry. We should not be discouraged because we do not yet see all things in submission under his feet. We should not be discouraged because just injustice and evil still seem to reign in this world. The prophet told us it would be this way. He told us the kingdom would come like a mustard seed. He, he told us that at least initially it would appear that Jesus had failed in his work to establish justice in the earth. And therefore we should not lose heart that we do not yet see that justice established. 
But we can't stop there. We, we can't just say, well, uh, the, the, the prophet told us it wasn't going to happen right away. Because not only does he tell us it's not going to happen right away, he tells us that it is certainly going to happen. He tells us that one day we will see that justice. The, the servant's right is with the Lord. Look again at what the Lord says down in, in verse 7. says to this one who was despised, abhorred, and conquered. The one who was despised, the one who was abhorred, the one who was conquered. What, is the, what does the Lord say to him? He says, kings shall see and arise. When you come into the room, they will stand up. And not only that, but when the princes see, they will prostrate themselves. Why? How is it possible that the one who was despised, the one who was abhorred, the, the one who was seemingly conquered, how is it possible that kings will bow before him? Well, it's possible because of the Lord. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel. Kings will arise, princes will prostrate themselves because the Lord is faithful. And he will surely do it. The servant of the Lord, the one who was despised, the one who was abhorred, the one who was seemingly conquered, he is in truth the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Those who seemed to defeat him will stand and prostrate themselves in his presence. In the end, his kingdom will be established. In the end, justice and righteousness and peace will flow from his throne to the ends of the earth. He will not only establish justice in Israel, but, but again, notice what the, the Lord says. He says, it's too small a thing that you should just establish my, my kingdom in Israel. It's too small a thing that you should simply bring back the, the remnant of my people. You will establish my kingdom to the ends of the earth. My justice will flow from your throne. To all the nations, my justice will flow from your throne, even to the coastlands. You will be a light for the nations. We don't yet see it fully. But the day is coming when we will surely see the kingdom of God on earth, filling the earth as the waters cover the sea. For the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, chose his servant for this work. And he is faithful. This is, this is actually the point that the servant himself is driving home in the first stanza, those, those first, first four verses. Look again at, at what the servant says. He says, the Lord called me from the womb. In, in other words, God had a plan for Jesus from the very beginning. From, from the moment of his conception in the, in the virgin's womb. God had a plan for his incarnate son. Remember that, that this one conceived, this one conceived in the virgin's womb, this one is the eternal son of God, the pre-existing son of God. And that means that God had a plan before he sent Jesus. As John says it in his gospel, God so loved he gave. Sam was, was telling the, the children about the, uh, the great rescue at the very end of the, the Star Wars movie where, where Han Solo comes in to, to knock Vader out of the way so Luke can complete his mission. But you'll remember that that mission actually began back at the beginning of the movie, the very first scene where the plans of the Death Star are stolen. The plan was in place from the very beginning. It looks as if things are going badly. But in the end, the plan will be 
executed because we're not dealing here with, with, with rogue pilots and, and, uh, and, and young farm boys. We're dealing here with the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel is faithful and He will do it and He has called Jesus to this purpose. His plan is not a, a last second Hail Mary. It's not a last ditch effort. We do that. We get desperate. After living in a bad situation for, for too long, we decide that we have to do something. But our decisions in those moments are, are seldom wise and good. Often when we're, when we're desperate, often when we're in a tight situation, often when we're making a, a last-ditch effort, we will, we will do something that doesn't work or even something that will make matters worse. That's not how we should think about God's plan. God's decision to send Jesus in the flesh was not a last-ditch effort made in desperation. It was his settled plan. It was his considered counsel from the very beginning. He called Jesus from the womb. And therefore, the incarnation, the birth of Jesus Christ, is the, is the promise and the guarantee that God will carry his plan on to completion. If this is the counsel of the living God, if this is what God intends to do, then he will surely do it. And it's what God has intended to do all along. But not only did God plan to do this, he also prepared Jesus for the mission. Look again at verse 2. The servant says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me like a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. Now that second phrase, there's a, a little a clunky in our ears. We're not exactly sure what it means to hide a sword in the shadow of your hand. We, we don't use that phrase. We're not sure exactly what it, what it meant. But, but we know what it is to hide an arrow in a quiver. And we can assume that those are, are parallel. The, the idea here is that, that when an arrow is in the quiver, it is ready for use. It is prepared. And so here, the, the servant is described as a sword, as an arrow, ready for use. What that means. The sword and the, the arrow. They are the weapons of, of war. They are, are the weapons that, that will allow the king to establish justice. For to establish justice in a, a world marked by injustice, to establish justice in a, in a world where, where enemies run rampant, to establish justice in such a world. The enemies of justice must be defeated. And that is exactly what Jesus does. He comes to defeat not just the Romans. He comes to defeat sin and death themselves. He destroys the work of the devil. He establishes God's kingdom on earth by conquering all pretenders to the throne. And if God himself, the Holy One of Israel, prepares Jesus for this work, then we can be certain that he is sufficient to the task. There is no possibility that he might fail. Even as God himself says to the servant in verse 3, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now that doesn't mean that the servant is the nation. Or that the nation is the, the servant. We, we see this in verse 5 where the, the servant has said that, that he will actually bring the nation back. The servant stands in the nation's place. He stands in Israel's place to do what Israel could not do because of the weakness of its flesh. And he will 
do it. God says, in you I will be glorified. And so whatever the delay, whatever the gap between the, the commencement and the, the consummation, however long our way to see that righteousness revealed, we know that day is coming. We know that God's purposes cannot be thwarted. And so we can stand and we can wait, entrusting ourselves to the Lord. We don't have to pretend to understand. We don't have to pretend to know what, what God is, is doing. I, I readily admit to you that I, I often do not understand what God is up to. And neither do you. We don't see the, the full story. We don't know all that God is doing. But we can know this, that he will do all that he has promised to do. And therefore, when someone laments about the wicked getting away with it, you don't have to explain it to them. You simply have to remind them that God is faithful. He will surely do we don't yet see his righteousness on full display. And in the meantime, we groan, waiting for that day. But we groan as those who know the hope of the gospel. We groan as those who know the hope that was first put on display when Jesus rose again from the dead. His resurrection was the first fruits of our salvation. I don't know how long we'll have to wait for that day to come in full. I know that day is coming. I know that the Holy One who sent Jesus into the world, He is faithful. The one who called Jesus to this work, the one who, who prepared Him like a sword and an arrow to establish justice in the earth, He will most certainly hold and sustain Him by His Spirit until the end, until He establishes justice in the earth. Because we know this with absolute certainty, the living hope of the resurrection from the dead. That is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Let's believe it. Father God, thank you for the grace that you have shown us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Forgive us, Father, for doubting your faithfulness. Forgive us for questioning your commitment to, to bring to completion the good work that you have begun. Father God, help us to recognize that the prophets told us there would be a wait. And if you have given us that wait for our good, that we might learn to entrust ourselves fully to you. And so Father, we ask for the grace to do just that. Father, give us the grace to see your resurrected Son sitting at your right hand. And to know with absolute living hope that he will come again. To judge the living and the dead and to establish your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Father God, let us wait with that hope we pray. In Jesus' name, and for his name's sake.